You're listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2212 South Broad Street. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. I'm going to start with a mothering story. Right after my son Zach was born, uh, they... They took him off of my chest um, and whisked him to the neonatal intensive care unit because one of the interns, as they were like weighing him, thought that they heard a, a skipped heartbeat. So it sent off, um, and this this story turns out well. So don't don't be afraid. He was actually fine, but it set off. This is the way it started. It set off. Um, this series of alarms um, in the in the hospital room, and um, they took him away from me. Took him to the intensive care unit, and and we were kept in the hospital for more than three days as they like did all these tests, you know, to rule out all the things. Here we are, right after I could finally take him home. And in this in this moment, I was trying to be grateful for this like thorough medical care, but emotionally, I was a wreck because of having my little guy yanked out of my arms, and so I kept asking Jeff to like wheel me down to the to the NICU to like be with Zach in his little like plastic cage and like nurse him through all the wires and probes that they had on him and all I wanted to do was take him home because I really felt like he was fine and he was I'd had a healthy pregnancy he was full term I was able to have this natural birth and so I wasn't expecting all this medical intervention but it was the separation from him that was bothering me the most and my problem was this new vulnerability born out of this love for him that was kind of like hitting me like a freight train. Like when I, when I saw him and held him, I was, I was filled with this love for this kid that I had never known before. And suddenly, and, and it was so scary to me because suddenly like I was not my autonomous self. Like, I was just aware that like I was not going to be okay if any anything happened to this kid and I and I didn't expect to feel all that even though I understand in- intellectually that mothers and kids are biologically codependent for a while and that's a good thing um I didn't I didn't know how to deal um with what I was feeling emotionally because um it was scary. Like, I wouldn't be okay if I lost him. And it, and it kind of, like, opened me up. Um, I felt like I had no control over this feeling or what they were, like, going to do to him. And so this was my big moment with God. Like, right on the right at the beginning of mothering, um, I was asking God for help in a whole new way. And I felt like God was clearly saying back to me, I love this kid more than you do, Rachel. And 
I know that's impossible for you to understand right now, but it's true. And will you trust me? Will you trust me on that? Will you trust me to take care of him and of you in all your new feelings, no matter what happens to him or to you right now and forever? Will you trust me? And it was a big invitation, one that I have returned to many times in raising kids and church planting. I keep returning to that invitation. And the promise I got from Jesus in that moment was that he loved my kids even more than I do, which feels impossible. And that he's going to take care of all of us no matter what happens. And so I, I keep getting called into loving vulnerably, to love even in the fear of losing. And I still go through lots of seasons where that feels so scary for my fearful little heart. Um, but Jesus keeps inviting me to loosen my grip on my illusion of control, to pry my fingers off that non-existent control button that I always want to have and surrender to his greater love for me and my kids and everybody that I love, our whole circle of hope. It's an invitation to keep expanding my heart instead of letting it shrink into my fear of abandonment and loss, like it's prone to do, which of course causes me to isolate and disconnect. I need to keep hearing that invitation from Jesus. So I think that Peter, in the Bible, got a similar invitation right after the resurrection. And I want to talk about it here tonight because we're, we're in this season of Eastertide. Um, these windows that Rand and Jimmy made for us are um, symbols of this new life and the openness that we want to have for it to kind of let the light in. Here, here was Peter in this story, and I, I know that I've talked about this story before, but I felt really compelled to talk about it again because he's, he's on the brink. He's hearing this invitation to trust Jesus in a whole new way, and it's going to transform him, you know, because here, here he is right before this conversation with Jesus. He abandons he betrays Jesus. He goes, you know, he was like the most exuberant leader disciple, and yet he abandons Jesus in Jesus's moment of greatest need. And then he's so filled with shame, and he, like I think he he does that because he's so afraid of losing Jesus. He loves Jesus so much, so afraid of losing him. Um, so he betrays him, and then he's so filled with shame about that, he doesn't know what to do with himself. And he runs away, and he stays away. And so that's what happened right, right before this conversation with Jesus that ends up transforming him and launching him into becoming, going from the, being the, the, the betrayer to being the rock that Jesus builds his church on. So the resurrection changes everything, and transformation is possible. Also, right before this conversation, you know, Peter's, Peter's so discouraged that he goes back to his old job. He's out, he's out um, fishing. 
with the other disciples um, because they think Jesus is dead. Um, they're out in the boat, and Jesus is, like, on the shore. And they come to him, and then he and Peter have this conversation. So somebody read us the story without the parts in white. Um, read us the parts in green. Emphasis on the love. So Peter and Jesus are having this strange exchange where Jesus keeps repeating himself, and I, it never made sense to me until I learned about the Greek. How um, there there are seven words for love in Greek, and they use different ones here um, that I think describe what Jesus is really trying to say to Peter. The love that Jesus is asking Peter for is this agape, unconditional love. It's divine love. And because Peter has just betrayed Jesus and he's feeling his tininess and his limitations, he responds that, yes, he loves, I love you, Jesus, but it's only brotherly love. It's only phileo love. This, you know, this is where we get our Philadelphia the city of brotherly love. And I, I think it's, you know, it's like how we like our sports teams. It's, it's conditional. But Peter, Peter's trying to be honest, I think, with Jesus here and, and saying, like, I, I love you, but I'm not there yet. Like, you know what just happened, Jesus. I phileo you. I don't agape you. And I think Jesus appreciates the honesty, but I love that he says, he still says, feed my sheep. It's kind of like, you got enough, you have enough to share. I know it's, I know you think it's just phileo, but I want you to share it anyway. Do something with it, even though it's not fully developed yet, Peter. I need you to share your needy, unfinished love. But then Jesus also asks again for that higher love. And I think that's, all, that's, the two, that's the two things that God is always doing with us at the same time. You know, accepting us where we are and calling us into like where he wants us to be. And so he says, Peter, do you love me unconditionally? Essentially, can you trust me? 
to take care of you and everybody else. And Peter responds again, like, look, Jesus, you know what I just did. You, you know me. You know how fearful and impulsive and broken I am. I, I love you, but it's not as good or as strong as you are or as I want to be. And Jesus accepts that. And, and, and yet he tells him to use that love again. I, I, get, I hear you, Peter, but I still want you to feed my sheep. You, I think the message is, okay, but, but you, can, you can nurture and feed our children with that phileo love. But what Jesus says, what Jesus says here the third time, I think really is the point of the whole gospel. And I think this is where Jesus really drives the acceptance and the forgiveness home. Because Jesus then uses Peter's word. He uses phileo. I think he's trying to communicate, I see you. I fully see you and I forgive you, and I accept you, and I know you, and I'm there with you where you are. Your phileo love is good. And I'm not going to leave you there in it alone. Your, and this is what part is all about, brotherly love is going to grow into such unconditional trust that it's going to, I laid down my life for you. You're going to grow into that rock. I know you feel tiny and insecure and vulnerable right now, but my agape love is going to fill you and change you fully. Receive it. Follow me. And Peter spends the rest of his life doing that. You know, the book of Acts goes on to say that Peter... People would, people would, when Peter walked into a city, people would just touch the hem of his garment and they were healed. That's how seriously he took Jesus's forgiveness and acceptance in this moment. Jesus communicates this full acceptance and identification with Peter, and he gives him this vision for growing into his full self. And I think that. That is exactly what we're trying to do together as a church, to make space for each other right now, to create this environment of hospitality where we're each really accepted and known for who we are and loved for who we are right now, and holding this promise that we're going to know and understand the unconditional love of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And it is going to enable us to love each other, and to change the world with Jesus. To do that sheep feeding that Jesus is talking about. Even though we are afraid about our limitations and we feel jammed up and angry and vulnerable and all the things that we feel are like wrong about us, even in all of that, the agape love of God that Jesus is extending, I think, is, is full acceptance of where we are right now and full promise of where God is taking us, each of us. So somebody who loved like this in, in modern times, um, 
is this lady, Clara Hale. And I want to talk to you about her here tonight because she um, she's one of the heroes of faith that we have this, um, we call it our trans-historical body um, blog where we um, highlight different people of faith throughout the year. And she's one of my favorites um, because I think she loved people really well where they were in the moment and she loved them into something bigger. So a little bit about her story. Um, and she's known, you might have heard of her as Mother Hale. But Clara Hale was widowed at age 27 in the Great Depression. She was a widow with three kids. And so she worked as a domestic worker by day and a janitor at night. I don't know how this lady slept. But she supported her kids that way, and she eventually was able to open up a daycare in her home so that she could be with her own kids during the day and um, take care of others and make a small living. And she fostered children as well. And when she finally retired... <laughs> retired in 1968, I think her real life's work began um, because her daughter, Lorraine, brought home a mother and child who were addicted to drugs, and she couldn't refuse them. And so she took this pair in, and the mother left for a while, but Clara, like, stayed up all night, like, trying to help this baby detox. And... Um, the mother eventually came back for that lady, but word spread, and within a few weeks, Mother Hale's little apartment in Harlem was packed wall to wall with 22 drug-addicted babies. She later told a reporter, before I knew it, every pregnant addict in Harlem knew about the crazy lady who would give her baby a home. So slowly, she and her grown children, like, started to invest their whole lives into, like, making sure they had diapers and food. They made this their mission. And Mother Hale kept the frailest of infants, like, in her own room and was with them, like, all night as they were going through the painful experience of detox. She was known to say it wasn't their fault that they were born addicted. My job is just to love them. And so eventually she got, she was able to get a license in childcare and she purchased a building in the mid seventies and she got some staff to help her. She got a grant, but, and, and she also like found adoptive. She tried to find adoptive families for these kids, but I love that she was, really picky about who she would let. She wouldn't let, let just anybody adopt these children. She was really, like, raising them as though they were her own because she would, if she didn't think some people were, like, worthy of her kids, she would refuse them. And she eventually helped over 2,000 drug-addicted babies, um, many of them born with HIV. And she said it was simple. She said, hold them, rock them, love them, and tell them how great they are. I think it was probably a lot harder than she let on because 
Raising kids isn't easy. And in the 80s, when she started this, thousands of babies were born addicted, uh, many of them HIV positive. And instead of addiction being treated as a national health crisis, like sometimes I think we're starting to think of it now, at that time it was like it was really seen as a crime that was sweeping the nation. Mass incarceration and neglect of poor minority communities became the response rather than the impl implementation of treatment programs and mental health care. So after the grant that helped her buy Hale House expired, Mother Hale's work became the victim of several cutbacks of state and city funds. Um, and public agencies with competing services like repeatedly harassed them for like the level of like dignity and care that she would not she would not um, like lower her standards to give a lower level of care to these kids. And so she she survived by being supported by churches and individuals and community groups. And I really think her relationship with Jesus sustained her. She. Uh, she tried to keep a low profile, too, but famous people found her, like John Lennon spent a long time trying to find her, and he brought her a big check one day, and after he died, Yoko would give her money every year, and eventually Princess Diana found her and visited her, and President Reagan ended up calling her an American hero, too. So she got the help she needed, and I think that was a lot through the way she prayed. Love can accomplish a lot. Even if you are needy yourself, like Peter and like Mother Hale, they fed Jesus' sheep with what they had, even though they often felt needy and unqualified and like children themselves. And I think that's why we say Jesus is best revealed incarnationally. We're going, this is one of our main convictions as a church, and it comes out of the fact that Jesus became this vulnerable, needy human being like us because that's the, exactly the kind of vessel that God fills. I think Jesus was trying to communicate, like, it's okay to be vulnerable. When we are vulnerable and involved with each other as human beings, we reveal Christ. One of our worship leaders was telling me this little story last night when we drove home from Ben Rosenbach's album release show, which was pretty great. Um, and he was talking to one of our cellmates one day, and they were admitting to each other about how they both felt just kind of like sick and tired and a little bit depressed. And so... They are on the phone with each other, and they made this little plan to, like, each get out of bed in their respective houses and, like, do their laundry and, like, clean up their houses. And he was telling me that just by talking to each other, they were, like, helped out of their funk that day. Jesus is best revealed incarnationally, and it, I think it really is that simple. We feed Jesus' sheep by being vulnerable sheep ourselves and, and sharing that with each other.
So I want to invite you to take a moment here at the end to let the Good Shepherd find you tonight, wherever you are. I love this picture of the shepherd. I know I've used it many times. Um, because Jesus is really going out to the edge of the cliff where that lamb is about to fall off, just like I was as a fearful mother, a fearful new mother, and where Peter was in his self-loathing. I think we're often like out on the edge somewhere thinking that nobody really sees us or cares. But we consistently find these images in the Bible of a God who actually comes to us, who is actually seeking us and like going out to find us, not the other way around. God out looking for us, longing to meet us in our trouble. And there's a lot of trouble in the world, as you've probably noticed. Racism, gun violence, climate change, and I don't think we can do much about any of it unless we keep letting God find us in our fear and worry and limitations. It is his agape love that we need. I heard a psychologist say one time that every newborn comes into the world looking for someone who's looking for them. Let's take just a couple minutes in the silence and see if you can let the Good Shepherd find you right where you are right now and see what he says and then I'll pray for us Jesus thank you for promising to feed your flock like a shepherd and to nurture us like a mother hen might protect her young thank you for giving us these Nurturing images of you as God, all-powerful God. Help us to let, let you find us. Give, it, give us the courage to be that vulnerable, at least with you, hopefully with each other too. I thank you for the promise of transformation um, and agape love and sheep feeding that you call us into. Um, I pray that more and more you could, we could see ourselves as feeders of your flock too with you. Thank you for this time together, Lord, and keep speaking to us. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.